Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross. This is podcast number 18 here at the WPLG Local 10 podcast studio in Miami, along with my partner in this, Luke Doris. Luke, what a big week. Oh, it's just a terrible week, but uh, looking back on Michael today, we'll talk quite a bit about that. We will. As I said, this is podcast number 18 in our series, and here in just a moment, we're going to be joined by WPLG Local 10 meteorologist Julie Durda, the morning maven of South Florida television for <laughs> low those many years, and by Brandon Orr, who is uh, relatively new to our team, new to South Florida, but has jumped uh, right in and, and <laughs> well, got to deal with some hurricanes right away. Uh, this week, we're going to talk, of course, about Michael that made landfall near Panama City a week ago today, as a matter of fact. Uh, on this uh, podcast last week, if you were listening and we recorded it the day before landfall last week, recorded it on Tuesday, I said, if it comes ashore or anything like his forecast, it'll likely be catastrophic in some parts of the panhandle. Even Tallahassee is in the threat zone. And, of course, that's what it did. I mean, it came, uh, it came ashore even stronger than I had in my mind at the time I, uh, I said that. And then today, uh, with Brandon and Julie and Luke, and I'll probably chime in, we'll talk about weather casting, just the business of weather casting, get, getting into it, tips of the trade, weird things that have happened. And believe me, weird things happen to anybody that, that does this job. Uh, everything we can think of. There are four of us here who have done it gotten into the business and stayed in the business. And of course, some of us started a little longer ago than others, um, like me. But uh, anyway, and Julie to a little bit of a degree, we've got youngsters here involved, which is great, really, because I hope that if you're thinking about uh, making a career of this business, that uh, you'll listen up because there's nothing like learning from actually doing. We're recording this on Tuesday, October 17th, 2018. If you're listening at some point in the future, Remember, you've got to check out local10.com or your Max Tracker app or Local 10 Weather app for any current information. And this podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe, rain or shine, win big. Visit miccosukee.com and discover the winner in you. The tropics right now, Luke, are uh, great. I'm Back first, asleep. First time since uh, August 27th that we've had a whole day without actually having an area to watch uh, wow. in the tropics. Yeah, yeah, and, and we had just yesterday uh, you know, kind of one that we were still keeping an eye on. It was way on the Western Caribbean, uh, was running out of time quickly before it ran into land, and once it crossed over Central America, chances of it developing anything just fell apart. It may develop once it gets into the Pacific, but that's no longer a concern. And uh, if you go back even further, say three days ago, something like that, there was one that was east of the Lesser Antilles. It was in the deep tropical Atlantic, and that one fell apart. So you take those two out of the picture, and there's nothing out there that we need to immediately keep our eye on. It's great. Yeah, that wave going through the islands is actually affecting them today, but the shear is pretty high, and uh, we're not really concerned about that. And high pressure is so strong here that it's keeping all the tropical weather to the south, and it's keeping the cold fronts to the north. Right, and so we're we're stuck under this for at least this week. Bummer, <laughs> as far as we'll, the temperatures we'll, go. We'll see anyway. about next week. Yeah. All right, let's uh, before we talk about Michael, let's bring in uh, Julie Durda. Julie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hi how are you? Good afternoon. Thanks for letting me come and join the party uh, with these men. Yes. Well, we're <laughs> always thrilled to have you, and Brandon Orr. 
here. Hey, Brandon, how are you doing? Yeah, the new guy over here. Yes, the new guy. All right, uh, so you guys were all around uh, for Michael, and you've been thinking about uh, this here for uh, a week. Luke, what are you thinking? Well, first off, a lot to get through. Michael made landfall with an estimated wind speed of 155 miles per hour. That's a very high-end category for hurricane. A couple questions have popped up since then of what its exact you know wind speed will ultimately be um, analyzed at. What, what will happen is in the coming months, there's going to be a lot of study that, has, that will occur, and they'll have structural engineers, they'll have you know, all sorts of experts to try to determine what the more precise wind speeds may have been. I saw one yesterday floating around on Twitter. It was a map. Maybe you've seen this, Brian, where, and maybe you have as well, guys, as uh, it gave an estimation of wind speeds that right now are looking a little lower than what the estimated 155 would have been. But if you look at the damage, it looks catastrophic, which could be tied with building codes. So it'll be interesting to see what the wind speeds uh, ultimately come out to be. Yeah, I think that that, that map was based on their observations so they put out a whole lot of wind observations and they actually point them point to them on the map and based on those observations that's the the map they made now there are going to be a lot of observations come in and that's why we don't know right away exactly what the estimated the final estimate is because all that data has to flow in the national hurricane center then they got to vet the data they decide okay that's a valid one that's not a valid one um, and, uh, and then they end up with a, a final result. Uh, Julie, you've been around uh, a few years <laughs> and seen some of these pretty uh, catastrophic hurricanes. Yeah. How, how do you, you know, what's going through your mind? How do you feel when, when one of these things is happening? Well, I mean, I've been with the South Florida for over 12 years, so it's been over a decade that I've tracked storms each and every summer, and unfortunately... To me, it doesn't get any easier. The only thing I can say that I really respect more than anything is the development of the intensity that we've been able to slowly, progressively get better and better with these storms and really the track. The track and the forecast path of the system, I believe the National Hurricane Center really has it down. This year, out of all the years, I believe it's been one of the best. And I'm even talking back because I used to work in Phoenix before I came here, even the Pacific Ocean, we track storms during this time of year. And I remember the forecast cone being all over the place. And to the moment of when systems would be making landfall, there is that possibility of a big shift by the end of the cone. And unfortunately, obviously, we never say that systems never travel in a straight line. Well, it's a proven fact that a lot of the systems could shift a bit more to the west or to the east or the north of the south, depending on where they're lo located and where they're going. So to me, I think, honestly, the forecast path has gotten progressively better. I think, unfortunately, regardless, when you see a Category 5 hurricane on the satellite and you see that eye open up to be symmetric, it is one of the scariest things we know as meteorologists because we know eventually if it's headed to land, there's going to be something we're going to be talking about, possibly catastrophic and possible deaths if people do not evacuate. Yeah, so, the, the satellite was unbelievable. Uh, the Landfall satellite insane. picture with Michael was really insane. Brandon, uh, this was your first hurricane in Florida, first hurricane season in Florida. Right. Right, right? Mm -hmm. So is there anything remotely equivalent to this in your time? And obviously you've been a meteorologist. It's not like you ignored hurricanes. So right. give me your impressions of, of having to 
be sort of close up in forecasting hurricanes, even though they didn't come to South Florida directly. Right. Well, I grew up in Virginia Beach. Okay. All right. So, so I was used to guy. getting. Yeah, I'm used to getting these storms. Uh, we, we would get them quite often. That would skirt by the Outer Banks. We were right there in the middle of it. Uh, this one, of course, was, was very different and. You could sit back from here in South Florida, and the sun was shining here. So I was getting texts, oh, be safe down there, and I would send them a picture. Yeah, of, a lot of those. Hey, you know, it's sun is it's a great beach day. It's a little bit breezy, but that's about it. So to sit back and watch it from that perspective uh, was actually – it was interesting to take all that information in and see how people are interpreting it because if that storm was hitting here in South Florida, we would have a different perspective on it. So to sit back and kind of see how – other forecasters are playing this. And mm-hmm. to piggyback what of, uh, Julie was saying, the track forecast being so accurate, uh, the storm developed so fast. It wasn't like a Florence where we've been talking about it for days and days and days. Yep. So yep. Uh, I, that track forecast, I think, saved lives with this one. Yeah, but the, the issue that you brought up, which is a very, very good one, uh, if you think of Irma, you think of Florence, uh, and, mm-hmm. y- you know, Maria to a uh, lesser degree because it it only had a few days, but still the track forecasts were were tremendous in those, and we talked about them forever. It seemed like before they eventually hit this one, actually uh, was a little over two days from the time it became a hurricane to the time it hit, which is a little more, a tiny bit more, a few hours more than Andrew actually went from mm-hmm. first being yeah. a Category One hurricane to actually making landfall. So you get these close-in storms. We talked about Andrew a few weeks ago mm-hmm. here on the podcast, and it's the scariest kind of thing. Uh, but I think, I think I agree with you, Brandon, that people are, um, after seeing the Florence thing, they just have the wrong kind of gut understanding of how much time they'll have. Right. I think mm-hmm. that's part of it. Yeah, and I even think when people were watching the forecast for Florence, because we we were forecasting a pretty major storm to move on shore, and it mm-hmm. was in terms of the rainfall and the inland flooding, mm-hmm. uh, not so much of the wind speed, I, they may have had that in the back of their mind where, well, the forecast fell short with Florence, is going to fall short with this one too. And quite often they do in the northern Gulf of Mexico, quite, quite often uh, Katrina being a, mm-hmm. a really obvious one. Yeah, I was we, just going to say that. We can significantly. Katrina. Yeah. Well, and uh, another thing, this what could have made this one more dangerous, you know, as far as how the public consumed the information, interpreted it, fast mover, late mm-hmm. developer, close to the shore, and it was weak. So we've talked about this before, Brian, where if you have a Cat 5 that's, you know, heading toward your well, home. Like, well, like Irma. Yeah. Yeah. Irma, I mean, all that talk about the Cat 5 out there and the yeah. damage in the islands. That's one thing. But if you see this puny little, you know, maybe it'll be a hurricane five days from now, maybe not, which is what the intensity forecast was looking like. The track forecast was great. The intensity forecast, it it just couldn't catch up. So you see that. And uh, then ultimately, this thing not only rapidly intensifies, but it rapidly deepens. It does both. The winds and the winds went crazy and the pressure dropped. Um, That doesn't happen all that often. Rapid intensification is a little bit more common. But all that. Um, right into an area that's never seen a storm that's this powerful before. So I wondered, how did the evacuation go? It, has anybody heard um, the evacuation numbers, how many percentage of people evacuated? No, I haven't heard the percentage, mm-hmm. but an mm-hmm. amazing number of people stayed was the, was the uh, tragic thing. And, you know, they're still, unfortunately, finding bodies in the debris because nobody, mm-hmm. nobody survived the, the storm surge there. Julie, reflecting back on Irma, uh, last year, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, you being on every morning as that 
as it was just sort of relentless for the longest time. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, what, what's your memory of that period about four days out when the when the center of the cone was right over uh, Miami? The dot was right on Miami, and it was a Category <laughs> 4 forecast for Miami. What, what do you remember about yeah. what you were doing and what you were thinking at that time? Well, at that point, we knew that we were going to be on 24-hour coverage. So, obviously, my job and my profession is to make sure that everybody who's listening, watching the podcast, and living here in South Florida is taking care of themselves, taking care of their family. And at that point, we had evacuations that we were talking to, you know, with our officials. I thought about my family because I feel as if people don't realize sometimes that we're normal human beings, too. We have to take care of ourselves and our family and our homes. To make sure that we can take care of them and i will never forget about three to four days out telling my husband you need to take my son you guys need to go and him discussing with me no we're going to board up we're going to stay things can change and me having that argument with somebody that i love more than anything as i'm speaking to him as i speak to the viewers because that's what we do every day that's our job our job is to make sure that people are prepared for what they can do for their family, for their friends, and prepare for their days, whether it's a tropical storm, a hurricane, or just a regular sea breeze storm. As my profession, that's my job, and that's what I love to do. But at home, we also need to take care of our family and our friends, too. So that's four days out. That's what I was – my impact was that. And then once I came to work, I turned that off, and I had to make sure that everybody that was a viewer that was watching us was heeding the warnings, getting prepared, watching the system closely because, you know, four days out, it was a lot scarier than when we saw it actually interact with Cuba because at that point, we weren't quite sure. The forecast cone had it staying just north of Cuba, maybe the outer bands affecting Cuba, but not like what we actually had occur, which at the end of the day really did benefit us. Unfortunately, it did not benefit Cuba, but it did help with the direction of the system. And obviously, as the system moved more north, it did stay more west, which unfortunately then inhibited the people that left here in South Florida that went west. Went to Tampa. Yes, too many of them went to Tampa. Yeah, that was not too good. So did did everybody end up staying? (laughs) Not everybody. (laughs) Um, Just my best friend and my husband and my son and our other best friend, and they hunkered down and... You know, at the end of the day, that was the decision they made. Right, right. But as a professional, you know, we all know that we have to take care of our family, and then we have to take care of our viewers. Right. So and, and I it's... knew they didn't have power, and we didn't have cell phones, and literally he was listening to me on a radio for two days. So. Wow. Well, yeah, and, you know, we we acknowledge that firefighters and police and, yeah. and uh, police people and um municipality workers and all these people that have to stay all confront the same issue is do I want my family to stay because if my family I know my family is safe it's so much easier to go to to be able to do your job yeah Yeah, I I mean I've given talks to companies various locations but uh, I remember after Andrew I I really pressed companies here uh, including I gave a talk a year last year or two at the airport I guess really pressing them to say, you know, if you would make part of uh, HR, part of Mm -hmm. inboarding people or taking care of your employees, helping Mm -hmm. them get their homes prepared and making 
a hurricane plan for their families and their property. And, and so they'll be better employees after yep. the storm. After Hurricane right. Andrew, half the people that worked at the airport couldn't work at the airport because their not, houses yeah. were obliterated and, and, uh, or they didn't have cars and it was, you know, it was a terrible thing. So, well, and you know, Brian, we were really lucky because our owner, you know, Bert and Bill, they allowed us to bring our family, as many people yes. as we could fit in our building because, right. you know, we are so lucky to have a new building that's hurricane-proof and, and it was the best move they could have made. So we yeah. all could make sure yeah. we were all together, we're on air, and since power went out, we had radio service, so that was really the best move for us. We're very lucky that we do work for somebody that would do that for us. Yes, and pets. It was a zoo in here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we had, yeah we literally. Had everything right. in here. <laughs> so, all right, let's go back to talk about uh, what happened in Michael. I actually just today published a, an opinion piece in the Washington uh, Post Capital Weather Gang about about the building codes because when the, the building codes uh, were created. The statewide building code came along in 2002, and that was a result of Hurricane Andrew. So Hurricane Andrew happened in 1992. In the fall of 1994, Miami-Dade County uh, imposed the new code. An interesting thing then, uh, as that code was going into effect, what the idea was, it had the code on the house had to do with when it was, the permit was pulled for the house. It wasn't actually when it was sold. Mm. So mm -hmm. during that time that the code went into effect toward the end of 94 and early 95, you would hear ads on the radio, beat the code. So so-and-so uh, housing development was permitted before the code, so we don't have to fool with those nasty new rules. You can get a house that was built to the old code and save money. Now, you don't hear anything like that anymore. Now, we, mm -hmm. we respect the building code here, and we understand that it keeps all of us safe to have that. Mm -hmm. Well, when in 2002, they adopted the statewide code, it was a huge fight. And actually, the, the fight from the north, from Tallahassee and from the special influencers up there, really pushed hard against the Miami-Dade code. And they didn't want to set up to have this example of this ultra-strong code. And they eventually compromised, and they created this high-velocity wind zone down here, high-velocity hurricane zone. And uh, But then they drew this map such that the code was much weaker in North Florida. And just looking at the panhandle, the western hand panhandle doesn't have as code like around Pensacola. It doesn't have a code mm -hmm. as strong as as here in Dayton Broward. But the Eastern Panhandle has a drastically weaker code. They actually split the Panhandle and they said, okay, we're not gonna get strong mm -hmm. hurricanes in the Eastern Panhandle, we're only gonna get them in the Western Panhandle. Mm. So, and then there was a whole argument about whether they even needed shutters and they settled on, okay, you need shutters oh. within a mile of the coast. After that, you don't need shutters in the Eastern Panhandle. So it was a, mm. they drew this map, which is really as much a, a political map, more a political map than it is anything to do with Wind speed, because why in the world would anybody think that the eastern panhandle in Florida is not subject to strong hurricanes? <laughs> you know, I mean, there's no meteorological know, reason for that. But I saw the map you're yeah. talking about. <laughs> yeah. You can see that dip yeah. in the eastern panhandle of right. lower wind speeds for the building codes. And they're drastically lower. So the, the wind speeds, the sustained winds, they, they use really funny numbers. They call them ultimate wind speeds on that map. What? Well, that's, mm. Right. Those are gusts. 
also known as gusts, mm-hmm. right? And then they use basic wind speeds, which they don't use anymore, and also known as sustained winds, more or less. Well, anyway, there, but there are a bunch of different kinds of sustained wind. But if when you sort all that out, in Miami-Dade, the criteria of sustained winds is 135 miles per hour. Up there, it's about 110. So it's high-end category two, low-end category three, versus our solid category four here. Now, obviously, there's a gust factor on top of that, and and everything's got to be designed. But if you design for sustained winds of 135, you build into that gusts up in the 170s, Hmm. right? So, but if you design for sustained winds of of 110 to 115, you build into that gusts up into 135 or so. So it's it's a uh, drastically different effect. And then we had this hurricane hit there that even for those new buildings that were built to that code, which is not most of the area, the, the, the hurricane far exceeded the code. So if we... If we had Miami-Dade or a house that were built to Miami-Dade code and it had dealt with some, you know, a storm that powerful, um, how would it have fared? You know, I'm wondering, I keep reading on Twitter, code works, and then you'll see this example of a house that's standing amongst a, um, you know, a community where everything else is gone and there's one house that's left. Right. Well, that happened in the New York Times had a big article about this house in Mexico Beach that's standing there with all this obliteration well, all around. That one it, right? is built well, well, beyond, well beyond, well beyond code. Yes, I'm talking about most houses that are in Miami-Dade and mm-hmm. Broward County. How would they take a storm like that if they were built? Because the reason why I'm asking this is, as we were doing coverage, you know, I, I said something and I looked back and I was like, was that a bonehead thing to say? And, and, you know, I'm not a structural engineer, but, you know, that storm looked to challenge strong buildings. And I didn't know if, you know, you saw a lot of these reporters that were in these buildings, these hotels that were, I assume, very close to the beach and looking to take a dead-on hit from the eyewall are they going to stand? You know, and you look at the destruction, a lot of them, I don't, I don't think they did. So how would a building with our code take that, would you guess? I'd uh, assume that almost every building would have some damage, but that essentially every building, unless they were like stupid unlucky and something blew big, blew into the building and, and really smashed it good, would be intact in in some fashion and that there would be safe space inside the building i mean you can take uh to the shutters or the impact windows that we put on buildings now or the doors you can take a sledgehammer to that you know it's it's drastically stronger than Mm -hmm. what was used during hurricane andrew and remember in hurricane andrew in spite of the fact that the the building code was actually pretty good here in hurricane andrew now Mm -hmm. The house is built through the 80s out in Country Walk became the poster child for this, but uh, they just didn't follow the building code and the inspectors didn't uh, pay attention and they built all these houses that should never have been built. But the houses that were built before were, were pretty good, but there were all these loopholes in the code and Andrew was so strong that it exploited every one of those loopholes. And then the goal of the new Miami-Dade code has been to plug those those loopholes to keep that from happening. And, and in the meantime, Every component of the house has to meet the same standards now. And it's not just theoretical. Before, it was a th- there were three theoretical standards. An engineer would say, yep, we're making these shutters, and they're good. 
Now they have to take them into a lab, bash them with two by fours, send mm -hmm. all, you know, everything has to be physically tested, mounted exactly as it would be mounted on the house with the same kind of screws that you would put it on the house. So every aspect of it has to be tested. Windows in their frame have to be tested, not just the glass and not just the glazing, so-called mm. glazing, right? So, uh, you know, I have confidence that I, you know, I can leave people in a home away from the water so that, you know, you don't want them in the water, obviously, but away from the water in these high-rise buildings that the, uh, the stairways and the, and the interior hallways will be safe places to be and probably probably the apartments will be okay but you wouldn't want to take that chance and have you know and, david muir his his window got blown out yeah while he yeah. was doing coverage mm -hmm. right right well yeah but that's not a that's not surprising up there yeah. right that's just not surprising uh, the way they build up there in terms of of we talked a little bit about communications uh, luke what did you think about the way you know the message uh, on on Michael. If if that were coming here, you know how would we have addressed that? Mm, that's a tough question to answer because now I'm kind of playing Monday morning quarterback <laughs> because I know what happened and we have this monster on our hands. But you know, it, as far as the forecast and the message was going, we need to be preparing for a hurricane. We kept talking here locally about you know this is going up each day. There's not a whole lot that could inhibit the storm. It doesn't look like. There was that you know trough that was shearing mm -hmm. it. So it, point is, it was looking like you need to prepare for a category higher. So three days out, it was yeah, it might be a hurricane. Mm -hmm. um, I pr just plan on a hurricane. Right now, it's looking like we could have one. And then two days out, well, category two is possible now, or maybe it was category three, three. by that point. Mm -hmm. So yeah. uh, at that point, I would have imagined that we would have really started to sound the alarms. I mean, the threat of surge there is just tremendous. So that was always on the table. But uh, I would imagine now we're looking at this storm that's really uh, thriving in, in this environment. So uh, I, I think it would have been full on, you know, this is this is bad, bad news storm. that's heading our way in the matter of really one day of a hurricane. You know, mm -hmm. it's going to be bad regardless, and surge is going to be a problem to, wow, this is going to just be tremendous. You know, in my Facebook posts, I, I always, always add the National Hurricane Center is currently forecasting to be a Category 3, but we always plan for one category more. Julie, do, do you think that, that even if you say that, that people uh, believe a statement like that, okay, they say Category 3, but we're going to plan for a Category 4 because we always plan for one category more because uh. the intensity forecasts are not as accurate as the track forecast, and it sounds like a whole <laughs> lot of words without right. with a fuzzy bottom line message. What do you think? Yeah. No, you know what I truly have realized here in South Florida? We are resilient, and people that have lived here for years or I've seen hurricanes and have actually watched the tropics, I feel like people down here are smart enough to know when they see a system, they're going to know that, yeah, this might be the big one. And that's the one thing I learned last year from the community around where I live, from the people at Publix, from everywhere I go, obviously, the question was, hey, this could be the big one, Julie. Hey, is this the big one, Julie? We're talking, obviously, about Irma. And, you know, hearing the common person say that, that have been here for years, I feel as if they're smart enough to know 
they know their limits and they know what kind of system could possibly inhibit something that's going to be horrible for their lives, for their live beings, for their families, when they need to protect themselves. I think when it comes down to us as meteorologists, we want to warn them. We want them to be prepared because we have the actual information, the data, the true facts. It depends on them. And I believe that if people see, like, you know, unfortunately with Michael, they saw a hurricane and they were like, we got this. Don't worry about it. Yeah, but I think that's obviously true. things changed in, 20, in 24 hours. It's like, no, now it's a Category 3. And that's when I think they got worried, and that's when I hope that they evacuated. Yeah, it's so at, least, it, at least some of them did. Listen, Julie, I know you have to go, but I, I, I don't want you to go without uh, taking up our other topic here. And just tell us how you okay. got into weather casting and, and leave us with uh, a lesson for people that are, are thinking about weather casting as a career. Okay. Well, long story short, I'm from Sacramento, California. I live in between three different microclimates. You can go to the Bay Area, you can stay in Sacramento, or you can go to the Sierra Mountains in a matter of about five hours. It's the best location to love and learn about weather. Obviously, there's no tropical systems that high up in California, but it's something that obviously really sparked my interest very young because I lived it. I would drive to the snowfall in the morning with my parents in Lake Tahoe, then we could drive to San Francisco and it'd be foggy or we go to Napa. So uh, depending on where you live and what you love to do, I think that really sparks people's interest. With that said, whether you live in an area that you have several climates or maybe you're just in an area where it's you know summer all year long, but you're surrounded by tropical forecasts and tropical systems, to me, I think the one thing is, I learned once you finally grasp what you want to do, and especially in meteorology, make sure you get an internship. Get an internship and see what it's like to be a part of a broadcast meteorology, whether it's on TV, whether it's on the radio, or maybe even go to your local official sites, go to the National Weather Service office, sit down with them and really be a part and grasp what meteorology is about because it's not something I can promise you you will learn in a book. You'll need to learn those skills to get you there, but the lifelong skills you'll live to actually be outside of a book and understand the weather, to me, that's the most important thing. And that's what you're going to learn and be able to teach everyone around you. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with you 100%. Interning, interning is the, the path to success in, in uh, many, many different aspects of, of the broadcasting business. But also, mm-hmm. it, it really helps you understand if that's really what you want to do before you dive all the way in and commit yourself forever right yeah for six years of schooling which again is great because you need that as your base you have to understand where things start but then you can't really put that to paper to your life when you walk outside because there are so many other elements that you learn because you're actually in the climate that you're forecasting so i mean i that's what i think i definitely think an intern in different spots you don't have to intern in your hometown go to another place and maybe see if they have an internship in you know 20 miles away from you or i'm sorry it's like 200 miles away from you some other city some other state go somewhere and learn because there's so much weather across the world that's so different every single day i mean take advantage I agree. I agree. All right, Julie, thanks so much. We'll see you on TV in the morning. Yes. Thank <laughs> you, Julie. Thanks for coming in, Brandon. Bye, Bye Julie. All right. Bye. All right. Thanks. Julie Durda every morning on Local 10 here in South Florida. Uh, Brandon, uh, 
you know, you're the relative newbie. You're a little bit behind, <laughs> Luke, <laughs> a little bit behind Luke, I guess. Uh, so talk about the process of actually getting into the business. And, and uh, did you decide that before you went to, to school, it's what you wanted to do? And, and then what happened when you got out of Penn State? Uh, no, I actually did not want to go into broadcast when I went into school. Mm -hmm. I guess I just didn't really know if I could do it or not. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I wanted to go in the National Weather Service. I tried that out for a summer and realized I'm sitting in a cubicle. Mm -hmm. And the what I'm doing is fun. I, I'm thoroughly interested in it, but I tend to look at the clock and seeing how long I have until, you know, I can go and do this and this and this. It, it just wasn't active enough for me. Uh, it works for a lot of people, but uh, I just get too antsy for that. Mm -hmm. Every day I kind of knew what I was about to do. Whereas here in broadcast, I tried that out. I interned at Wavy TV back in, uh, in Portsmouth, Norf Norfolk. Nor Norfolk yeah. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's where I grew up. And every day was different. I had no idea what was coming my way when I came in in the morning. And that's the way it is for me right now. Uh, so that's what I love so much about it. But it's hard getting in this business. Mm -hmm. It's not easy. When I graduated, uh, it was a few months before I graduated when I started sending things out. I send out 80 emails. And every time I sent out an email, it came with a letter in the mail. It came with everything before I got my first interview. So it took about seven months. It was later that fall when I got my first interview. And and, but, but that's what did it was was your sending out emails. And in the email, you had a YouTube link or something with a yeah. video. Uh -huh. I would send the DVD, too. It was <laughs> yeah. uh, even when I was getting it's outdated to even use a DVD. But I knew there were news directors out there who would appreciate that mm -hmm. uh, and found one who did, actually. So it was small market, eastern Kentucky. It's a subset of the Lexington market uh, in Hazard town of 5,000 and something people. Uh, Which is unbelievable. It has a TV. What, it mountain, does. Mount, mountain television, or they call it. Mountain News mountain is News. what it's called. That's what it's called. Yeah. Right, yes. uh, we <laughs> had an Applebee's and, and a Walmart. That was pretty <laughs> much the entire. That's all you need, buddy. That is all, you know, many nights at Applebee's. I spent my weekend evenings playing bingo with my friends. That's, that's how it started out in Hazard. That's all we had to do. Uh, but you know what? I still had a good time. There's huge gorges. A Red River Gorge in eastern Kentucky is beautiful. So in the summertime, there's kayaking. There's whitewater rafting. You can uh, rock climb. Uh, people from Europe come over to eastern Kentucky to rock climb. So the, you can find stuff in these small towns that you can really enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. um, did you enjoy TV there? I did. Yeah. Because I mean, every day was you different. Can't, you can't really screw up, right? I mean, you know, I mean, yeah. you, you, know, I mean you really have a chance to to refine your craft and figure out what works, what doesn't work, and, and uh, how to solve problems. Right. And I got to do a little bit more than weather, too. Because when you start out, uh, there's a, a lot of meteorologists who are also doing some reporting. Because mm -hmm. these small TV stations, you know, they need you to fill more than one position. Mm -hmm. uh, so I also did a, a show where I did kind of an adventure of, tourism show. A lot of big TV stations you got to fill more than one position these days. Uh, uh, <laughs> I feel like we do that here now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. And, uh, and we're pretty lucky here, I'll tell you. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, so I, I did a little bit of everything mm -hmm. and found out that I absolutely loved it. I ended up... Uh, going um, rock climbing, we would do kayaking, we would do bungee jumping off of railroad bridges, and we would film it all, and it aired on Fridays. Something I never thought I would ever do in my entire life came from just taking a chance on this mm -hmm. one small That's town. Cool. And, it, you know, here I am very fortunate enough. I was 26 years old, and I accepted a position in Miami. It's it's kind of very fortunate for me. I'm, I uh, can't believe it, actually. But <laughs> yeah. it all, it, you know, 
it's this is the same person that it took seven months to find their first job. Yeah, yeah. It's a you never know. You just absolutely never know. Luke, how did you get your first uh, chance on television? Well, I had, we talked earlier about internships. Uh, I, too, wanted to be uh, working for the Weather Service, Brandon. That's what my original plan was. And uh, I was at the University of Oklahoma, and I was fortunate enough to get an internship at KWTV in Oklahoma City under Gary England and Mike Armstrong, a couple other guys. Great teams, yeah. Oh, it was an incredible team. And I got the internship just to get an internship. I didn't necessarily, even at that point, think I wanted to do broadcasting. And then I saw them chase tornadoes and helicopters. I'm like, I can do this. (laughs) This is all right. So I got a tape together and it took a while as well for me to find, uh, you know, a job. I just, it it took a bit. Did you send uh, like Brandon, did you send out a whole bunch of letters and emails oh, and you bet. DVDs. And Listen, news? if you are interested in becoming, you know, an on-air, you want to you want to get on TV, you have to be your own, you know, agent and representative and that's a full-time job. You got to work hard to get that out. And what I used to do is I would get on the internet and I would search until I found it, it's hard to find the news director's email addresses. They're usually hidden. So I would send in my emails like six or seven different possibilities of what the email address combination could be usually it's like first initial last name at tvstation.com or whatever and finally uh i i got a hit in lincoln nebraska and tremendously lucky that it was a weekday morning position because i am a horrible reporter i'm not good at it i'm not good at time management with it and uh, this didn't require any reporting which is kind of rare coming out of television or out of college most places where you start you're gonna have to do that and because uh, you do the weekend and then three days a week they have you doing something else that they need done in the news department exactly exactly so this was a weekday job and did that for two years and uh, also that morning job you're on tv so much that it's really good i think for your performance oh yeah performance practice i mean even though i i always hated being on that time of the morning but uh, I, I think so, don't you? Don't you, Brandon? Don't yeah, because you? you do it so many times, yeah. you start losing the other thoughts you have in your head about what you're doing wrong. You just kind of get in a rhythm. Right, and also you tend to interact, I think, with the other talent more. That uh, They've made the evening news shows so bang, 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 bang. There's not much discussion where in the morning – Sometimes you do have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. You show your personality more in the morning. In the morning. I think so, too, yeah. Yeah, it's a good way to cut your teeth. And what I used to do, too, is I would watch myself after almost every newscast, but I'd watch myself often and be my own worst critic. You know, I think that's important that you look at yourself objectively and be like, well, that sucked. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can we do better next time? And, uh, yeah, so I did that for two years. And then I had a weird situation where uh, I've – if you ever get involved in TV, maybe one day you'll come across the question of should I get an agent or not, but I ended up having getting an agent briefly, and they lined me up to go to a station I really didn't want to go, and I was on my way this Friday to fly out to go sign uh, with the station that I didn't want to go to, uh, but you know, TV's a weird thing. You sign by contract, so once your contract's up, you you're in a hard spot. It's either I got to sign it someplace new or I need to re-sign if that's a possibility. Um, but you've got to make a decision and that decision's a life changer. You're going to be moving someplace else. And like Brandon, I'd made friends. I'd really liked this new area that I'd moved. Lincoln was an awesome town. Um, and I wasn't enthused about it, but I was set to fly out that afternoon to go sign papers on my new contract. And, uh, just before I walked out of the station, the station in Lincoln came to me and said, 
hey, um, we've got an opening for the evening job. You interested? That day, I said, yeah, you guys couldn't have timed this any better. I was about an hour from catching a plane. So I ended up signing there for the evening position, took over as chief uh, for five years there before I moved here uh, to Miami. So that's my brief story. Yeah, all, all kind of stuff like that happens. Yeah. And it happens. It happens very frequently. For most people that think about doing this job, the thing that stands in their way is that they have to do the math in school. In order to get a meteorology degree, you can't do meteorology without math. Uh, and I mean, meteorology is physics, and physics is based on math, so you're kind of stuck with that. To one degree or the other, different schools have different rigor in the amount of, of uh, math. D do you think that, that the amount of math and physics and, and all that and, and actually forcing yourself to go through that. First of all, was that hard for you, Brandon? Was math your thing? For me, math was my thing. So that was not the hard part for me of doing meteorology. At times it was, and at times it wasn't. I would yeah. not have survived if it wasn't for this core group of friends I have. And we would stay up all-nighters <laughs> before an exam and just cram and cram and work and work. I don't think I would have but survived. But that was the hardest. Was that your, the hardest part of the meteorology program was the math? Oh, by far. Oh, yeah. Okay. For for most people, I think that for, for you, Luke, was was math the hardest part? It was all hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> math was hard. And then in the meteor, the meteorology classes, dynamics and things like that, it's a murderer's row. It is. Especially uh, junior year. You're like, well, oh, it, well, it is. But it's, on the other hand, it's the math in general that is the daunting part of, I mean, dynamics is Look, all math, right? I'm, Partial differential equations in PD 17 really parts. I'm, I was never uh, great at math. I, I was able to work my way through it through hard work. It just mm. I would be up all night. I did also have friends that helped me out. We all had strong points, weak points. Very important that you try to get that set up if it is a weak spot for you. But what I learned about math is there's a trick. Learn what that trick is. That's all math is. Find out where that trick is. Know where to apply it. Memorize that. Oh, this I do this one thing here and then you can solve your equation. And then from there, it's just changing little bits. And once mm -hmm. I kind of figured that out, it's, it's, I'm having a difficult time describing it, I was able to work my way through those difficult math courses. Well, so the question is, you know, all that effort, that time and effort and sweat and everything that, that you went through to get through math, uh, the math part of the physics of the atmosphere, which is meteorology, uh, do you think that served you well in terms of what the end result is, as you know, as you use meteorology every day here and you make forecasts and you analyze things and try and understand information that's flowing in, data that's flowing in, uh, was that really necessary, really, to, to do the math at that level, do you think, Brandon? I find it useful. It, because, I mean, we're I mean, using... You don't do the equations well, We now, don't but, do the equations but, but, the, but the fundamental understanding of it. You know, I forgot so much stuff from college at this point, uh, going back and uh, looking at things. But I also feel like understanding... Because we look at these computer models every day, and we try to understand them. And knowing the background and how we're getting this information, I think, benefits you at the end. Would you agree, Lou? Yeah, it, it gives you the deeper, more intimate knowledge of why things happen and from there you and and why you know with some of these models or whatever they may have biases and you know it, yeah it, it's not I, I never crunched the numbers anymore you know I'm not using these equations on a daily basis but what it did is it laid the groundwork for my deeper understanding 
as you know the years went on and I began to use it in forecasting. Uh, spoiler alert. They don't teach you much forecasting in meteorology school. No, you might it, have it, a couple classes. It but really is a flaw in meteorology school. It uh, is. It really is. You know, I don't even think we've learned cloud types throughout Whoa. my entire. No. I, I, not one class that I have that even taught that. No, me Man. either. Me either. No, it's true. Yeah, no, I I push on meteorology schools whenever I have an opportunity to tell them you're you're not doing your students a favor by not requiring them to forecast. Because it's such a, a big part of what we do is make forecasts every single day and be willing to revise the forecast and understand the mechanics of making a forecast and the philosophy of making forecasts and all the different aspects of actually converting the models and the science into words, right? And, and I think that's a... a a huge flaw well, in most meteorology schools today. And in my experience, it was almost frowned upon if you weren't on the path to go to master, you know, get your master's degree to go to graduate school because everything was research driven as opposed to what we call operational meteorology, which is forecasting. You know, it was everything was geared toward you stepping to the next level of education versus you entering the workforce. Uh, so yeah, I well, felt we have these programs today, though, that really they're focused on broadcast meteorology. I mean, you at Penn State, they have a kind of a broadcast meteorology component to it, right? Where you did a lot of stuff on campus, campus weather. and Oh, they have the equipment for it, that's for yeah, sure. But yeah. I graduated with about 55, and there was four of us that went into broadcast. Right, mm -hmm. but but for the people that want to go into broadcast, in my mind, they ought to, be, they ought to learn to forecast. The exactly. Flor yeah. Florida State, my school, uh, they have really terrific, uh, people coming out and they have a broadcast program there and they do a half hour weather show every day five days a week and there's uh, four or five of them they're in the show and they kind of rotate through and they talk about the weather and so forth but they don't have to make the forecasts for that show hmm. the forecasts are made by somebody else and and i just think that that's a, a missed opportunity uh, that that'll make it harder for them for those folks when they actually have to do it suddenly mm -hmm. they have to do it absolutely right? it's, a, it's a thing all right so uh, tell me do you have a story do you have something that happened to you in TV that that uh, is is interesting funny crazy difficult uh, that you can think of well, which one do you want? <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel I like know. there's a long list, <laughs> yeah. especially when you start out in small market. Right. It's a little bit different. Um, you know, I'm a tall person. Um, so this is always my go-to when people ask me that. And you uh, you guys, of course, can't see the chair that I'm sitting in right now. I'm basically on the floor. So I'm yeah. six foot five, and I was sitting in a chair. You know one of these chairs that have the handle underneath where you can push up on it and it, it sinks down? Well, uh, my shoes tend to tend to hit that that little bar and on air came crashing to the ground on me. <laughs> the video i cannot find it i'm thankful for that I, it's it's gone um but it happened on air and i still joke with friends about it there's a bunch of stuff like that we drop the clickers occasionally and uh finding an interesting way around it but you know what the best way to handle a situation like that is just to make fun of it Absolutely. Yeah. You, you, get, you joke around with it. Have fun. People love seeing that stuff. There are some times where I, I come into the studio late and have to hurry up and, and jump on the green screen. And we make a joke about it, and it turns out being better than if you were on time. Exactly. Well, there's no question about it because it put, puts some humanity 
into the performance. It's not mechanical. Uh, Luke, what, what do you remember? Uh, well, I've had a, I've got a problem with saying fart on air. <laughs> <laughs> so this has happened to me four times now. In Lincoln, I, I would, it's happened to me three times in Lincoln over the course of my seven years there, where in my head I would start to say storms are starting, and then I would at the last minute change it to storms are forming and would come out storms are farting. <laughs> so we had farting storms in Lincoln three times. And then here in Miami just a, a couple weeks ago, uh, I had started to say Fort Lauderdale and it came out <laughs> Fort Lauderdale. And I didn't know if it had happened or not. So I like in my head, I was like, did I just say fart? I think I said fart, <laughs> but I wasn't sure. So I just kind of blew past it. But my, my better story was actually how I got involved with uh, meteorology. And that is originally I was uh, – an I'm a gearhead. I wanted to be an automotive engineer. I was two years in college to become an automotive engineer. And uh, what I did during, you know, I worked while I was in college and I was at a, a warehouse. It's a big aluminum sided warehouse that Mack trucks pulled in and out of. And I drove a, a forklift and loaded these beer trucks. And we were one afternoon, this is in the St. Louis area, a storm blew in and uh, you know, we were next to a state highway. It started to hail. People drove in off of the highway and they tried to park underneath our awning. We had this awning that was on the front of our building in our driveway. And the awning blew down onto the cars, broke windows on the cars. And then uh, the building moaned. And the best way I can describe it is if you've seen the movie Titanic, when Titanic is halfway out of water and you can hear that metal starting to stretch mm. and bend and it makes mm. a moan. Yeah. That's what my building did for like three seconds, which doesn't sound that long, but it's long enough for you to look up and think, we're getting hit. We're getting hit by it. This thing's going down. And it did. Half that building blew down while I was in it. And I thought we were getting hit by a tornado and I was going to die. And I wasn't, my half of the building stood, but the other half of the building went down. And it lasted for about 30, 45 seconds of really ultra, uh, pretty intense winds. And there was just stuff flying all over the place. It was chaos. And uh, it ended up not being a tornado. It's what we call a microburst. And it was mm -hmm. 90 to 100 mile per hour straight line winds. We were right next to an airport, got some really good observations. I studied it in college, but after that happened, I said, nope. I got to know how this happens, and then I, I switched gears and yeah. went off to, to meteorology school. Well, uh, I'll tell you uh, a difference, a big difference in television now, than, and maybe difference between big market and small market too, but, but we used to laugh. Things would happen. Things would go wrong. More things went wrong in the past. I mean, now everything's kind of computer-driven, and if the computer is working, things are da 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 and, and there's not an opportunity, really, because the computer's going to move on. Uh, but things would go wrong. Lights would explode or something like that, or things w would happen, and we would laugh. When I first started at CBS here, we, we adopted a new graphic system. In fact, it's the precursor was called a, a weather producer precursor to the system that we all have now. And it did not work well. Mm. It just didn't work well. So I would do things like when it would freeze up, I would bang on the chroma key. No, no, that's not what I would do. I'd walk out of the frame, go over then and you hear me going like this. I think I got it now. And meanwhile, somebody else is like trying to reboot the system really quick, and then it would come back up, and then it seemed like my, my beating out there fixed it. And, and it got to be so bad that we actually, at the beginning of every weathercast, we put up a slide that showed like a sawhorse and uh, hammers and nails and stuff <laughs> like that, and it said forecast center under construction, and they'd run this, you know, like saw <laughs> noise and stuff like that to kind of set people up for the fact that this may not go well, right? Um, 
Well, one time in San Francisco, talk about you know stuff happening and kind of your mouth not exactly, uh, your brain not thinking, uh, being coordinated with your mouth. So I, for whatever reason, I looked at the the weather map and there were three tornadoes I wanted to talk about and and uh, I said. Strange day today for tornadoes. There was one in the shoulder of Florida by Jacksonville. And I go on the map and I show the shoulder of Florida there. And there was one here in the toe of Alabama down there by Mobile. Uh, and then there's one here in Missouri in that part that hangs down in the front. What do you call that? <laughs> <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and the anchor, you hear him in the background go, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so they're all on the anchor desk. They've got their 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 hysterics on the anchor desk. I'm standing over at the weather map, going, "What?" <laughs> yeah, and, and then I go, "Oh no!" <laughs> anyway, so that was a moment. But People was, love that though. Yeah. They eat it up. They do. <laughs> yeah. So it was uh, anyway. Funny, funny things would would happen then. And at, at the thing that they did. This was a KGO in San Francisco. It was a great TV station. Just to give you an idea, back then, in that single TV station on Channel 7, there were 350 people working, and 12 of them were in the scene shop working at that TV station back then. This was when this was in the heyday of of TV. And the great thing about it was, and maybe you guys have found this as as you've gone to bigger markets, that you work with... You know, more talented, and not just more talented, more experienced. Sometimes more talented, but certainly more experienced people in bigger markets, and it makes you better. Don't you think that that coming and and working here and working with really experienced anchor people, you that you tend to get better. I, I I found that when I went to San Francisco. I mean, I'd worked at CNN before San Francisco, so I wasn't working with slouches, but going to work with these superstar talent, a guy named Van Amberg was the, the main anchor at KGO in San Francisco at the time, was one of the all-time great anchormen of just forever. And just being with him and interacting with him was it just made me uh, a better talent. Yeah, not even thinking about it. I think just listening in, in the yes. back of your, your mind, you, you just listen to the the words that they're using and and the way they react to things exactly yeah Yeah, yeah. you hear it and and you just automatically start to not copy it but you develop your own way that's that's very similar yeah i think you're you're more willing to be responsive because you see how it's done just see how it's done luke what do you find yeah i agree with that and i also think that one of the hardest parts to get past is to find yourself on tv you know there's there's a weird thing that happens when that camera goes on, especially when you're new, of I need to be perfect. I can't mess up. Get it right. Don't screw up. And over the years, you get past that. And maybe over the years, you also go up and you elevate and market. So then that can also make you better. But something that I've had to work with personally is if you are around people that are you know at a much higher caliber or, or maybe they're more experienced or whatever the case may be if you see them and then you start to look at yourself you know confidence is very important you have to have high confidence in television and if you're looking around thinking everybody's better than me your confidence can take <laughs> yeah. a little bit of a hit so you got to learn how to manage that but yes you do you do you have but you do have to be confident that you can do it yes and you have to go for it you, you really do have to go for it it's not a business for being shy 
It, you know, on television. It really is. All right, we need to uh, we need to move on. We need to remind you that the podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Rain or shine, win big. Visit miccosukee.com and discover the winner in you. And and I did want to reiterate what, what, that I agree 100% with what Julie said, uh, that uh, interning is critical. If you want to give you a head start, is intern, and it'll help you in uh, many ways. Uh, this week is an interesting week in South Florida history. I'll tell you a little story about Hurricane Irene because it was so goofy in 1999. So here's a hurricane, came up across Cuba, and then aimed for the Keys and was aiming for South Florida. And it was disorganized. It wasn't, you know, it was like everything was on the right side. So the track of it was up the West Coast. That's where the center of the cone was, up the West Coast. But the cone took up the whole state of Florida. Back then, the cones were giant. And it took, it took up the whole state of Florida. So I had in my forecast that, uh, that day, that night, the night before that this was going to arrive, flooding rain. Because you could just see on the satellite, I mean, it was just this huge plume of tropical moisture coming up on the right side. Hurricane Center put up a hurricane warning for the Florida Keys, and here on the southeast coast, they put up a tropical storm warning and a hurricane watch. So that's what we had that morning. So here comes uh, Friday morning. The buses all run. People all go to work under this tropical storm warning. Broward County actually announced it's business as usual in Broward. What? Right. So all this is happening. So. I get up, you know, because I was working the late shift, so I'm probably up at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning or something like that. And I'm, lo- I'm going, and it's starting to blow kind of strong out there. And I'm like, this, this, is, this is no good. So I get myself all ready, and I'm getting in the car. I'm driving over the causeway from Miami Beach, and there's a bus in front of me, a, uh, a Miami-Dade bus in front of me that is taking up all three lanes because the bus driver cannot keep the, the bus in the middle lane on that bridge. It's just going because the wind is gusting already so much. So I'm on the phone. I call the Hurricane Center. Yes, I said, you got to get to the, the mayor. I'm trying to get to the mayor's office going, what are you guys doing? This is, this is you know, bad. I can't get to the mayor. The Hurricane Center is talking to emergency management. In Miami-Dade, they, they stop all the bus service at noon. Now they have all these people that came to work on buses now have no buses to go home. Mm. And the mayor goes on television uh, and announces that we really should close businesses and let people go home. Well, but the problem is that a lot of people are stranded. And it starts pouring, dumping rain. And so people now try and go home, and the neighborhoods are flooded. And so they can't get into the neighborhood. And the canals are filling up. In Broward County, they never sent people home. In Broward County, they actually ran, they had a show at the Broward Center for Performing Arts that night, and they had the show go on. And I ended up talking to the performers in the show later, and they said they could hear the wind whistling outside and the building creaking during, while this was going on. While a tornado went through just down Las Olas and knocked down trees, and uh, people ended up driving into canals, it was just... Crazy, crazy, crazy. I wrote an op-ed for the Sun Sentinel, you know, essentially saying, you guys didn't take this seriously, and that was a big mistake. And what it was is 
they and the and the hurricane center took a lot of heat. As a matter of fact, if you go back and read their their report, they actually defend themselves in the report from all the heat they took because the center of the cone went up the west coast and people took that to heart, ignored essentially the the tropical storm warning and the hurricane watch and and went with where the center of the cone was. And then the storm actually did kind of veer to the right, and the center came a little closer. But uh, you know that was that was just one of these prima facie situations where the language and the way we communicate by even putting up tropical storm warnings and and having a cone that's wide and being in the cone was not sufficient to even convince skilled people running big counties. That uh, that this was a serious threat and and to keep people home, so it was a fiasco. Mm. It was really a, a monstrous uh, fiasco, but it was a great a great lesson. Although those folks aren't running things anymore, so <laughs> so but it, but it really would be for I think for uh, uh, managers and emergency managers, uh, you know, would be a great great example to go back and look at. Yeah. Yeah, a tornado going downtown, and oh no, it's all good. Don't worry about it. Well, well, it was horrible, and eight people died in that. Five of them due to electrocution because they were. Uh, this is a horrible story of of um, a mother, I think, going out and walking the dog in Broward, and but the power lines were down, and the puddle was was oh electrified. So you had five people die that way. And you had three other people wow. drive their cars into flooded canals because you couldn't see the canal for the road. I mean, as you know, you drive around South Florida. Some of these roads have big canals on the side yeah. of them, right? Uh, but if the canal is so full that it's over the road, where the road ends and where the canal begins is is uh, not obvious. What category was the storm? A one. One. Yeah. Mm. Right. And the only hurricane force winds were there were some in South Day, but they're mostly offshore. Uh, Miami Beach, I think there was a gust over hurricane force, but but that's it. But generally, it was a 40, 50 mile an hour storm. But it, everything was so saturated that that was enough to take down trees. And that was enough to take down power lines, just the winds, you know, of that uh, intensity. So anyway, that was uh, that was really something. So that's our podcast for today. Uh, one more reminder that uh, this podcast is sponsored by the Miccosukee Tribe. Rain or shine, win big. Visit Miccosukee.com. Check out all they're doing here in South Florida. Discover the winner in you. We'll be back next week with Dr. Rick Nabb, uh, former director of the National Hurricane Center, former director of the Central Pacific Hurricane Center, now uh, once again, uh, back at the Weather Channel is my colleague at the Weather Channel for a number of years. Known Rick for a long, long time. He's a, you know, one of the great uh, hurricane minds in, in every which way. And uh, we'll have him on the podcast here next week. So until then, for Luke Doris and Brandon Orr and uh, Julie uh, Durda, I'm Brian Norcross here at the WPLG Local 10 Podcast Studio in Miami. Have a good week. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>